0: That's F-R-E-T-1-0. That's all at isotope.com. I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com.
1: Hey, this is Ed Peterson. And this is John Kiltica, Ed. How was my level, John? Your level was great. What is this? This is the High Gain Podcast. Oh my gosh, where are we recording from, John? Beautiful West Seattle like we do. And what do we talk about? We talk about guitars. Guitars, amps, pedals. Yeah. Keyboards once or twice? Once. Once we did a keyboard. Drums? Never drums. Four plus years, not a drum has been talked about. Fuck drums,
0: John. That's what I've heard. <laughs>
1: you know what I'm yeah. saying? <laughs> I'm here to talk about string stuff.
0: Yes. That's what I'm saying. And you know, we are going to do this in our normal slapdash, shoddy fashion. Hell yeah. Except oh. we have somebody that does it way more professionally than we do.
1: That is such a low bar, John. <laughs>
0: more pro than us? Wow. You've heard of the fretboard journal. Sure. The editor of that fine publication, Jason Verlinde, yeah, is here. He's waiting. Oh. You there, Jason? I'm here. He's oh. there. How you doing today?
2: I'm doing well. How are
0: you guys? Good. Thank you so much for showing up to talk to us. Oh, I'm honored. We're
1: in beautiful West Seattle. Where are you calling in from?
2: I'm out in the sticks. I live 45 minutes east of Seattle, outside of a tiny town called Duval. Oh, sure. I left the big city right before the pandemic. Now we are country living. How is that? It's a lot of cleaning rain gutters and pruning. <laughs> a lot of raking, but it's good. It's a good life. Today, Ed? Yeah. In addition to our man Jason Verlindy,
0: yeah. We have a 1964 Epiphone Olympic Special guitar. <laughs> Yes, beverages, Ed. Mr. Jason Verlindia of the Fretboard Journal,
2: Mm -hmm. do
0: you have a beverage?
2: Yeah, I'm going to be really granola here. I'm drinking a can of Kombucha Town from Bellingham, Washington. Ooh. This is a flavored kombucha carbonated beverage and i didn't really drink this kind of stuff until a year or two ago but i like this brand because on the back they give you like 10 little bars and it shows the caffeine level oh yeah i don't think any of them go all the way to 10 this one's a six i think but i like that i like to think that the uh, drink i'm imbibing in is going to wake me up a little bit oh hell yeah does it have a specific flavor this one is lavender, which you would think would taste awful, but I guess all these kombuchas are kind of a acquired taste. This one's pretty good. That sounds pretty good.
1: I've got a uh, green bar distillery, un-gin and tonic. Wow. It's a non-alcohol gin and tonic in a can. Wow. They were in a four-pack, and I hope I'm not going to regret that there's three more sitting at home. <laughs> What's the verdict? Does it taste, in fact, like a gin and tonic? Man, I have not had a gin and tonic in a hundred years. Maybe it's got that juniper berry thing going on. Mm. Sure, okay, maybe, a little bit. I also got a black coffee.
0: Coffee you have yeah. to have. I, in fact, have one of those too. Yeah. But my main beverage is a Topo Chico water. Love it, awesome. Oh, that's great. With a twist of grapefruit. You didn't add
1: the grapefruit.
0: No, they added it. They did it for you. They did.
1: That's great of them.
0: There doesn't appear to be a slogan associated with the grapefruit,
1: but there you go. Crisp and fresh, is that a slogan (laughs) from Old Green Bar Distillery? Mine says, live healthy, live happy. All the flavor, none of the buzz. Well, it's not Hmm. like
0: Jason's is going to say, live healthy, be pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. What do you think about, what is this? The Epiphone Olympic.
2: Olympic, yeah. What do you think of that, Jason? It looks like it wouldn't weigh much. It's very thin and very light. I have a problem with this guitar, which is all about that headstock. And I bet there are people out there that, love that headstock. Ed hates the headstock, too. It looks like a butt to me. <laughs> it looks like a butt, or maybe on a good day, a half-drawn heart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, on a good day. It's a problem. Oh,
0: I hate it. This thing occupies an unusual space. In the Gibson slash Epiphone continuum. Yeah. They put this model out shortly after Gibson bought Epiphone. And that's when they thought, oh, we'll make some solid body Epiphone's because traditionally they're all jazz boxes. Yeah. They started designing things like the Coronet or the Crestwood or the Wilshire. Yep. This Olympic was one of them, except for the headstock. This is an exact copy of the Melody Maker. Cool, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Why would you have two that are, except for the headstock, the exact same features? Yeah. I will tell you. New, they were the same price. Also dumb. (laughs) Oh, I could get a Gibson Melody Maker or an Epiphone Olympic. They're the same price. So, Jason. Yeah. In 1964
2: dollars. Oh, boy. I suck at these. (laughs) What would a person have paid for this Epiphone Olympic special? Oh, man. I'm going to get this so wrong. There's no way I'm going to look good if I answer this question. But I'm going to say $160. $160 says Jason, Ed.
1: You have to trust me that I had a number in my brain before you said your number. Are you going to go $1? Is this price is right, Rules? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that would be really great. I think $129. $129.
0: The actual price in 1964. Yeah was $127.50. Oof, look at that. God damn. It's like the Antiques Roadshow over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to try to redeem yourself, Ed, and tell us what that is in Today Dollars?
1: Yeah, Today Dollars, $1,360. You're really doing pretty well today. It's about 1200 bucks. God. When they did that buyout,
0: did they merge factories? They did. They moved all the Epiphone stuff That's what I from thought. the East Coast to Kalamazoo. Right. They were made in the same place by the same people. You
1: pull the pickup out of this thing, and you pull the pickup out of a melody maker.
0: Exact same PU-380 single coil pickup. Weird. Same thing. Huh. I guess
1: there's another question about the resale value. Because you're buying the same guitar if you can live with yourself for supporting that headstock. <laughs> the fretboard journal y'all have covered every guitar known to man a lot of them it's amazing thank you what guitar jumps out at you is amazing and it's a sleeper
2: i don't know that there are any more sleepers everything's been found yeah i just look at this guitar and i'm not the world's foremost epiphone expert as is painfully clear but did that headstock end up on any other guitars Because There were so many cool Epiphone guitars from that era that don't have that headstock. No, it didn't. And in fact, didn't stay on this one long. This is
0: 1964. Shortly after that, they switched to that kind of bat wing headstock with three tuners
2: on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Which was way cooler. Totally. All those Olympics and coronets, they're all so aesthetically pleasing. And then you look at this thing and (laughs) it's like, who designed this? we got to switch to the batwing headstock and maybe make the maestro vibrato
0: standard. So they changed some things around, but there was overlap where they were still making the butt headstocks. (laughs) And so that's why this is called the special, because as soon as they switched to the bat wing, that became the Olympic. And they're like, oh, well, weird. what are we going to do with all the butt stocks? Wow. <laughs> we'll just call those special until we run out of
1: parts, yes. I guess. <laughs> so Epiphone is not your sweet spot. What is your sweet
2: spot? <laughs> What's your deal? What's my deal? Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of ground at the Fretboard Journal. I know a lot of folks think of us as sort of an acoustic leaning magazine, and we do cover a lot of acoustics. But we do also cover a lot of electric guitars, and we're all over the map. I mean, my whole thing is, if it's music, I will actually go home and listen to, I want to interview that artist and hear about their gear. That is how discerning I am. If it's actual stuff that I would play in my car on a commute and not just kind of quote unquote guitar music for guitarists, right. that's what I'm all about.
0: You've done an incredible job of differentiating from Guitar Player Magazine or Guitar World. Yep. Was that a conscious choice right up front, right at the beginning?
2: Yeah, totally. I started this magazine in 2005 when I really got the guitar bug, and I was looking at guitar magazines and going like, I'm not really feeling any of these. And they're all great in their own way, but you know, I kind of wanted a magazine that wasn't just about new gear reviews and new albums. I wanted the stories that you overhear when you're hanging out at a guitar store and just kind of talking to the guru there and so that's sort of the magazine in a nutshell which means we don't actually get or pursue a lot of the ads that a lot of other magazines get because we're not doing gear reviews we're not doing demo videos we are sitting down with artists and the guys who build guitars and the gals who build guitars and talking to them about their craft and what they're excited about and, and kind of trying to Get stories you're not going to read about anywhere else. I don't know anybody that's not familiar with the Fritboard Journal, either through the magazine or YouTube channel or the podcast. You've really branched out effectively over the years, it seems. We're trying, you know, I've been podcasting now for probably 12 years. We Ooh. really crudely started before anybody even cared about podcasts and we're still at it. And now we have a whole little network of five or six shows that cover a bunch of different things. We're about two blocks away from the Tractor Tavern in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle. So when artists come through, whether they're playing there or whether they're playing somewhere downtown, if it's somebody that's sort of in our wheelhouse, we'll invite them over and we get these little cool intimate sessions that we post on our YouTube channel. That's always fun. And then the magazine comes out a few times a year. When we talk to musicians, one of our standard questions is how big of a hit did you take
0: during COVID? Touring was next to nothing. Yeah. To what degree did it affect
2: publishing a magazine, if at all? Well, even in 2005, when we started, everybody was declaring print magazines dead. So I've been dealing with that for a long, long time. There are magazines like ours for other genres that are totally flourishing, and we're doing pretty well, too. A magazine like ours tends to weather a lot of these storms. The thing that really hurt us during the pandemic is some of the supply chain stuff that is affecting everyone. Getting nice paper stock for the magazine and postage for shipping the magazine. Oh, right. All these new headaches that I wasn't anticipating. The other thing that our magazine is kind of known for is doing these really comprehensive, beautiful photo shoots at either artist studios or at a Luthier's workshop. I've noticed that. For a year and a half there. Nobody really wanted a fretboard journal photographer (laughs) in their private space. And we kind of worked around that and found some other cool ways to get great photos. Finally, people are opening their doors again, which is great. Do you send somebody out or do you have stringers in whatever city? We have freelance writers and photographers and we welcome pitches from folks all the time got it we have them scattered around the country and so if there's some luthier we want to cover and they're in a region we usually can find a great photographer it's a little different you know a lot of magazines just do product shots I love seeing just how messy people's workbenches are. I love seeing how crappy people wound their cables, you know, at their studios. (laughs) I just love seeing all that. It kind of tells its own story. We try to really just be a fly on the wall when we can and take a lot of really natural photos of them and their environment. The art direction of the magazine is amazing. Our art director, Andre Mora, is here in Seattle. He used to work for Seattle Met Magazine, and he does an incredible job. How many people are on the team? It's tiny. There's like three of us Whoa. that are working full-time, and then we have a whole bunch of contract people and freelancers. It's all kind of a really scrappy, small operation. It's always been. You started this in 2005. How did that happen? Did you have a background in magazine
1: and publishing, or did you just like, ah, I'm going to make a magazine. How hard can it be?
2: It's hard. (laughs) (laughs) The reason that I moved up to Seattle from California was I was a music journalist writing about indie bands and doing that whole shtick when you could still make sort of a living doing that. And then Amazon hired me, I moved up here because they were just a bookstore and they were about to start selling music and they hired a bunch of music nerds. They hired a bunch of music journalists and people from labels. And the whole idea was like, Hey, in May of 1998, we're going to start selling CDs and we need, you know, to build up this database and write reviews and all this other good stuff that we all kind of just assume existed forever now. I did not get rich. I just made enough money that I started to kind of be able to buy a mid-range guitar and sort of read about guitars and fall in love with them again. That was really when I got the bug. I was reading a lot of magazines. I've always been a magazine writer. And I reached out to a beautifully made surfing magazine called The Surfer's Journal that's been around for like 30 years now. And I said, I'm going to take a leave of absence. I want to work for you for free. And they're like... You can come down for a day. (laughs) So (laughs) I went down for a day and learned as much as I could. They helped me out with like, oh, here's who our printer is. Here's kind of what our editorial calendar looks like. And it was really inspiring. The minute I came back, it's like, there's no way I'm going back to my little cubicle. And so I just plotted it out with a buddy, worked out a prototype, and we went to a NAM show, and the next thing you knew, you were selling ads and people were pitching stories. What was the most unexpected thing you ran into starting this thing up? I think one of the most unexpected things was the level of interest from like Borders, which still existed, and Barnes and Noble, you know, thought we'd print a few thousand. We suddenly had to print 10,000 copies just to meet oh, the demand wow. from those bookstores. That demand from those outlets isn't what it used to be.
0: Today, What's the split between those kinds of retail customers
2: and just guy at home? Yeah, we have mostly subscribers now. We still have a bunch, a few dozen great guitar shops that carry us and do quite well for us. And we're still carried at a variety of newsstands. But 85, 90% of our readership is subscribers, which is great because, you know, if you go buy it at your local store or newsstand, we don't have any way to get a hold of you and tell you about the next cool thing we want to do pre-covid I'd email all the Seattle subscribers and say, "Hey, I'm going to be at this brewery on Sunday afternoon. You want to show up and bring a guitar and we'd have these like cool little show and tell beer drinking sessions." You can't do that if somebody buys it at some Barnes & Noble in Topeka. We don't even know that you bought it. And you do have events like that often. Your next one's going to be in Chicago, right? Yeah, we did two things we called the Fretboard Summit. My elevator pitch was like, "It's the TED Talks of guitars." It wasn't really the TED Talks of guitars, it was just a great way to hang out and hear some great music and hear from some of these luthiers in person we're doing one in august in chicago at the old town school of folk music i'm pretty excited we're gonna have a game show we're gonna do an iron <laughs> chef style competition for guitar techs Ooh. we're gonna have three parts casters and then a pantry full of pickups and random parts and stickers and cool. god knows what else and they'll have 60 minutes and then we'll have an all-star panel of judges Deeming one of them, I think it's going to be called the Phosphor Bronze Chef, because Iron Chef's already taken. Are you going to auction those off? I think we're going to give away those guitars. Stumac is providing us with the actual kits, which is really great of them. Yeah, I think we're going to let a few people walk home with a really cool guitar. And then we've got a bunch of lectures from some of the folks probably who've been on your show and a bunch of folks who've been featured in the Fretboard Journal. We're going to have some hands-on things with some really cool guitar makers and then some amazing concerts at night.
1: Has there been a point where... You've been contacted by someone and they're like, hey, I love the
2: magazine.
1: If you want to chat, I'm open to it.
2: Yeah. Both Jackson Brown and David Crosby received the magazine. I'm not even sure how, but they both sort of reached out. Both of them invited me to their sort of inner lair. I went to David Crosby's house in Southern California and I went to Jackson Brown's incredible studio in Santa Monica and got to hang with them. It was amazing. And because I was just sort of this weird, sloppily dressed guy from Seattle, Jackson hung out with me for hours and we talked about guitars. And then I filmed this incredible video of him playing something fine. And I don't know that if I had a camera crew, he would have allowed for someone to shoot a video three feet away from him. Right. Yeah. But because it was just me and we just talked about guitars for the last two hours, he's like, "Oh, sure, I'll play it. And he played it and it was insane. I love hearing stories like that. We've found
0: doing our show that the community writ large is so generous that way with their
2: time and their expertise. It really makes it fun to be around the gear and the music. Yeah, there's a sense of community that happens. This is why I got into writing about guitars more than bands. Talking to a young indie band that's just starting out, there's not a lot of stories under their belt. But if you talk to them about their gear... Suddenly, everybody opens up. They've all got stories about, yeah. you know, why they pick what they pick, what they take on the road, the thing that got stolen, the thing that they're longing for. We're all kind of speaking the same language, and it's really fun to just geek out with other guitarists.
1: Have you found that you have a sweet spot between the luthier maker community that you want to cover and the artist
2: playing We try to have a pretty even split between builders and players.
0: Have you ever connected those dots in one place? That is to say, if you've got a luthier building a specific kind of guitar and then a well-known player playing
2: it, put those two in the same room? Yeah, that happens a lot because the luthiers are super proud of whatever they came up with and they open the door to the musicians. Yeah, we love sharing those stories. What do you think of the fact that there's so much of this
0: kind of stuff up here in the Northwest, podcasts, magazines, YouTube
2: channels, is it something in the water up here or is it everywhere? (laughs) It is interesting. There are a lot of guitar makers up here and I think most of them were pretty well established for the last 10 or 15 years. I don't know of too many who are moving here necessarily for the guitar scene. But then you have all these creative people who maybe are done working for the man or are tired of working for the man and need a little side hustle. Yeah. There are so many talented people up here who live and breathe guitars. You want to hear more about this, Ed? <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're supposed to talk about
0: guitars. You've got an epiphone. If I go totally bassy. Yeah. It mellows out kind of nicely. Sure. But, you know me, I like to just crank that treble and...
1: Throw that 81 on again. Okay,
0: a little overdrive, 1981. DRV, yeah. It's kind of nice.
1: The melody maker that we covered a little while back sounded better. Is it just the fact that I can see the headstock... (laughs) It sounds worse because of that headstock. Is that possible? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Do you have favorite guitars that you just gravitate to?
0: Yeah. And has it been a slippery slope having this magazine? Do you find you end up with more guitars than you thought you were going to need ever?
2: Well, I'm a struggling magazine publisher. (laughs) I get to see a lot of great guitars. There's still some guitars I long for. I'd love to find a really cool harmony stratotone that I could afford. I think those would be fun to have. Perfect.
0: When we were corresponding setting up this interview today, you mentioned that you were getting a guitar sent from Australia. Yeah. How
2: often does that happen where you want to have the guitar in hand or did you happen to buy it? Well, that one I bought, but we get offered guitars all the time, which is a great problem to have. I'm not complaining. The problem is we rarely talk about the new specific big model from brand X because there's really no story sure. there. They just had a model and they're unveiling it at a NAM show or they want a bunch of journalists to write about it. Right. So that's not really our speed, but yeah, in our last issue, our 49th issue, we did an interview with this guy from Australia who goes by the name Wandering Boy Guitars. He builds old Stella Oscar Schmidt blues style guitars. And then he beats the crap out of him and he's an artist he was a guest on our podcast then we did this story with him and then I was like I gotta have one of these in Seattle people are gonna ask about it I want to be able to play it so he sent a ladder braced parlor Stella style guitar it was held up in customs for a little bit for no real reason I think it's just short staff customs at FedEx or whatever but it's in my possession you guys should come see it sometime or I'll bring it out to West Seattle it's incredible we should totally do
0: the road trip yeah. You mentioned uh, a while ago when you started your
2: journey into
0: guitar in 2005. Yeah. Were you talking about the magazine or did you only start playing then? How long have you been playing?
2: No, no, no. I've been a lifelong kind of, I guess if I was a golfer, it'd be called a duffer. I've been a guitar hack for a long, long time. But yeah, in 2005, I just started geeking out about guitars. I bought a cool jazz guitar that uh, was way above my pay grade and I didn't deserve. I bought a Not even vintage Martin, but just a nice mid level Martin back then, and started to really just kind of geek out about all of that world. Up till then, it was sort of like I had a Tysco Del Rey and a couple of random things sitting around the house that I picked up at garage sales or whatever. So I've always been a player, but that was really when I started to just devour guitar media. It's been a long time. (laughs) i don't think i could get a job at amazon again i'm kind of up shit creek i gotta figure this thing out you're better than that
1: (laughs) you're doing great you don't need the man come on oh thanks the takeaway you need right now is to get your paper stock in order because the high gain bump that's about to
2: happen (laughs) (laughs) get ready i love that you guys have the only guitar related podcast where you leave the listeners wanting more You don't go on for two hours like all these other podcasts, including the ones that I do. You're like, let's do a tight 30, call it a day. Yep. We are up well over an hour at
1: this point. (laughs) I'll boil this down to like 25, 30. It's incredible. I don't know that John makes me sound smart, but he makes me sound not as dumb. (laughs) I call that a success. (laughs) You
0: gotta try it. Rubber Meets the Road, Jason Verlindy of the Fretboard Journal. Would you buy this guitar or deny
2: it? Deny. The headstock? That headstock. I think it would be fun to have it for like a week and to make an Instagram account where you just put like little diapers on it. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the shorts that you would see those chimps wear back in the old days when you could still dress up a chimp. Oh. <laughs> But then after that week, I think I would just be tired of looking at it.
1: Uh, (laughs) 100%. The Melody Maker was a strong buy for me. And this is the same guitar. Outside of the headstock, it's identical. I loved the Gibson version. Man, I hate this thing. I hate it.
0: (laughs) I think I have a pair of those little squirrel underpants. Yeah, yeah. Archie McPhee.
2: Yeah, go for those.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's a buy for me. But aside from the headstock, yeah. if I wanted something in this kind of form factor, single pickup, thinner body, something like the B.A. Ferguson right, is going to fit the bill. Right. Shout out B.A. Ferguson. B.A. Ferguson guitars, yeah, they're great.
2: You know what you should do with this Epiphone? Create two YouTube channels <laughs> from scratch. Brand new zero follower YouTube channel. It's the exact same video, but one of them is just cropping that headstock out. Yes. See which one performs better and what the comments look like.
1: There are a lot of opportunities with the headstock. (laughs) Taking photographs of humans and just dropping the headstock where the butt would be. (laughs) Maybe we actually need to keep it just for the photo opportunities. I think we did a great job today. How'd we
2: do? If you guys are happy, I'm happy. It was a blast talking to you too.
1: People can find you. Rattle off every spot on the internet oh my god
2: go (laughs) fretboardjournal.com is where you go to learn about everything that we do but we are also on youtube of course we have a youtube channel podcasts include the fretboard journal podcast the truth about vintage amps podcast there's now a truth about recording and mixing podcast and then we have a podcast called luthier on luthier where Michael Bashkin, who is a well-known acoustic guitar maker out of Colorado, interviews his heroes. And so those are our main channels right now. And then we've got this Fretboard Summit happening, which you can also read about on fretboardjournal.com.
0: And I can't say enough how much I think everybody should subscribe to this magazine. It's got the super informative stuff that we all like, but it's just beautiful. Thank you so much.
1: The photography is bonkers. What about us, Ed? Thehighgain.com. Yeah. Instagram, Twitter... Facebook, Patreon. Yeah. Big ups to Ruinous Media.
0: Yes, our friends over at Ruinous for uh, putting up with us.
1: If typing in the high gain is too much, you could just go to Ruinous and find us from there.
0: Yeah, it's great. Jason, thank you again so much for coming to talk to us. This was fantastic. Thank you guys.
2: I can't wait to see you in person.
1: IRL Meetup coming soon. Yes. I got the gin and tonics ready to go. (laughs) Okay. Bye. See you later. Bye.